We are uh, studying one of the great stories of the Old Testament, and that is the book of Ruth. And I call this four-part series Rescued, because in this story, Ruth herself is rescued, and through her, God unleashes his plan to save the world. The story takes place over 3,000 years ago, during the time of the Judges, which was a very dark period in the history of God's people. And uh, in chapter 1, we followed a man by the name of Elimelech as he moved his family uh, away from Bethlehem, their homeland, to escape a famine. And uh, he moved to a wicked place called Moab. And while in Moab and spending years there, Elimelech and his two sons died, uh, leaving three widows in a foreign land. Uh, Naomi, the mother, decided to return to Bethlehem after a 10-year absence once the famine was over, and uh, one daughter-in-law, Ruth, goes with her. Uh, Ruth chooses to follow the one true God and leave everything else uh, behind. In in chapter 2, where we were last week, uh, the women moved back to Bethlehem, uh, but they have no income or food, and Ruth decided to go to work in one of the fields at harvest time so that they could eat. And uh, she ended up in the field of an influential landowner named Boaz. Unknown to Ruth, Boaz is related to her in-laws. He's kind, he's good, uh, he does what he can to help and protect Ruth as she works in his field for at least seven weeks during two harvest times. Uh, And it seemed... uh, If you read stories like this, it seemed like, well, sparks should fly at this point. We've got a single, wealthy, powerful landowner meeting an impoverished young widow from the wrong side of the tracks. It seems like a Hollywood ending should be in order where they both ride off on a camel into the sunset. Uh, But at this point, it doesn't seem to be happening at all. Uh, The harvest is nearly at an end. Months have gone by. Uh, Ruth's temp job is almost over, and uh, uh, nothing seems to be happening. So as chapter 3 begins, uh, the plot seems to have stalled. It doesn't appear that Boaz has read the script in any way. He didn't ask her out. Uh, And maybe Ruth herself expected nothing. Uh, After all, she's previously married. She's unemployed. She's a foreigner. She has a bitter mother-in-law. And uh, she described her own self earlier to Boaz as not even having the standing of one of his servant girls. So maybe she's not surprised that he doesn't make a single move, doesn't invite her out to coffee at all. Now, uh, we, uh, I call this chapter, When You Risk, and I believe that here we have some uh, truths about God that are important for all of us as we seek to live for God in our world today. And to help picture this, a picture that has helped me in my life is bowling. Now, uh, I don't bowl very often. I don't have anything against it. I think it's fun. Uh, do it on occasion uh, when there's absolutely nothing else to do. But there was uh, maybe about in the last five years, I went bowling with my entire family, the little grandkids and all, and, and we had a good time and uh, enjoyed ourselves. But what I did uh, in that instance was something I really hadn't done before to my knowledge, and that is bowl with the bumpers up. 
Have you ever done that? I mean, we had the little kids there, and you don't want to get them all discouraged about uh, throwing gutter balls every time. So the, the bumpers go up, and they keep the ball from going in the gutter. Now, the beauty of that is that uh, you're not guaranteed a strike every time, but pins are going to go down regardless of how or where you throw it because the bumpers keep it generally in that lane. So I want you to have that mental image of bumpers because in this story of Ruth, we're going to discover two bumpers for those who put their trust in God. For those who are living life uh, knowing that the Lord is sovereign, that God is in control, that He has a design for His universe, that He has a design and a plan for your life and for mine, and understanding that's true, how do those of us who believe, how do those of us who follow Jesus in this life, how do we go about our daily life and decision making? Well, there are two bumpers that are demonstrated in the story, two guardrails that sort of keep us on track. And the first one is faithful risks. I'm going to explain and show in the story what this is about, but this is one bumper, the one side bumper that keeps us uh, in the lane of where God would have us to be. So we have this romance that seems to be brewing, that, that seems like a given, but nothing is happening. Uh, Boaz doesn't friend Ruth on Facebook, no text messages, doesn't respond to her Christian Mingle profile, nothing's going on here. And Ruth uh, might have assumed that he didn't have any interest in a foreign migrant widow. But her mother-in-law, Naomi, does not see it that way. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Now last week we talked about trusting God and taking the next biblical step. Uh, Naomi sees the next biblical step here. Uh, I also see Naomi beginning to recover from her bitterness. You realize that she has had a lot of trauma, a grief, and pain in her life and uncertainty, and it's caused her to uh, begin to think that God was against her. She stated that. She said, call me bitter. The Lord's hand is against me. All of this has, has caused this, this great uh, trouble in her life, not being able to see that God is good. Uh, but now she's starting to recognize, well, maybe God is up to something. Maybe there is uh, something going on where God is not. Maybe he's still at work for my good, even in the midst of all of this. That his kindness, the, the hesed, the kindness, the mercy of God is beginning to shine through into life. Now the way that Ruth just so happened, that's how the Bible puts it in chapter 2, she so happened to end up in the field of Boaz, who was a, a kinsman, a relative, that was a signpost from God, and Naomi's beginning to recognize that. Uh, the kinsman redeemer, the Goel, which is what we have throughout here in uh, uh, Ruth, is something that God set up to protect the promised land. Whereas each family in, uh, of God's people had their own portion of the land, and it was never to be permanently sold. So if a family hit hard times and they had to sell, uh, th then a, a near relative, a kinsman, could buy it, and he could redeem the land for his poor relative. That's in Leviticus 25, where that's laid out. So Naomi wonders if Boaz would, would do this for them, that he would be their Gaal, uh, and while he's at it, maybe he could marry Ruth. That's what she's thinking. That's a biblical next step. And so she says this, verse 2, Behold, he, that's Boaz, winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Now, at the end of the barley harvest, the barley had to be separated from the chaff. 
And that kind of a situation was actually a party atmosphere. Everybody got together, had a good time, ate together, did that work together. And after they did that work, the workers then slept on the threshing floor. Why would they do that? Well, to protect the harvest from thieves. Because at the moment all the work is done and everything's all set up, it would be easy for thieves to come in and grab all of that harvest. And so they slept on the threshing floor as a means of security. And Naomi wants Ruth to take advantage of this opportunity to nudge Boaz in the right direction. Sometimes men need a little bit of a push. Uh, we're not stupid. Uh, we're just thinking about other stuff, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, we've got our little box of things that we think about, and that's how men tend to be. And, and sometimes women say, well, how come you don't get it? Well, the truth is we don't know what it is half the time, so that's why we don't get it. But there's this little nudge for Boaz. And, and all the other times that Boaz has seen Ruth, she's been uh, uh, working hard in the field. Remember, that was, in, in, uh, uh, th- that was one of the principles we saw how hard she worked and is covered with sweat and field dust. And this time she's going to shower and it says put on best clothes. Uh, the Hebrew word is simlaw for best. And it simply means a, a, a wrapper or an outer garment. So Naomi tells Ruth, I want you to clean up and cover up and then go to the threshing floor. Uh, verse Three continues, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. Now this plan seems so odd to us and so off uh, that, you know, is is she throwing herself at him? What is Naomi's plan here? Is this like showing how desperate you are? No, here's what's going on. As we saw last week, Naomi and Ruth are both trusting the one true God. Uh, They are seeing where God is leading, and they're taking a step in that direction. Uh, That's a faithful risk, a faithful risk. By this action, Ruth would make it known to Boaz that she was willing for him to redeem her, to redeem uh, the family. And this was a risk, but it wasn't without some guidance and prompting from God. It was in line with the command of God, uh, Leviticus 25. It was faithful. But the risk also was very real because Ruth could be rejected, and it would put her in an even more vulnerable position. But with the blessing of her mother-in-law, Ruth takes this faithful risk. Nothing improper was intended, but it's a bold step. Now remember, Israel's come through years of famine. Famine lasted a long time, uh, and then Naomi and Ruth came back. Uh, And now times are good. The first harvest after the famine has happened, and they're praising God, they're celebrating, and they settle down for the night. And it's at that moment, Ruth follows Naomi's direction, and she lay down at uh, Boaz's feet. Verse 8, it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Now, in the Arabic world, by the way, placing the corner of your robe or blanket over a woman was a marriage proposal. Uh, What Ruth is suggesting is more than that. She uses the terminology, the Hebrew word is goel, uh, for close relative or kinsman redeemer. Uh, this This would be that Boaz, she was suggesting that Boaz take responsibility for the entire family and their needs. She's not proposing to Boaz, she's proposing that he propose. That's what's happening here. And and she lets him know that if he asked, she would say yes. Now there are reasons that Boaz has not stepped forward yet in uh, 
pursuing Ruth, and for these reasons, it's risky for Ruth to propose this. She's a Moabite. He's a Hebrew. Uh, She's a young widow. He's an older bachelor. She's on unemployment. He's the boss. And uh, she didn't say improperly, Boaz, let's you and me hook up. I'm ready. That would not have been a faithful risk. That would have been an unfaithful risk. The risk she took was guided by God's commands and by good counsel. Here's his response, verse 10. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So this makes it clearer why Boaz hasn't made a move, because he didn't think he had a shot. Uh, there are other possible suitors with better claims, uh, and, and when, it, when it says younger men, it indicates that there were guys who were more, impro- more appropriate choices. You know, they still had hair and they were fit. Uh, Boaz is taking multivitamins and daily naps. Uh, so this amazes him. And he calls it a kindness, a hesed. The hesed of God, the kindness of God is shown in the story. And Ruth is seen as as hesed, kindness, mercy. And as impressed as Boaz was with Ruth, how how she stuck by her mother-in-law earlier, he expressed that. This is even more uh, a greater display of goodness that he sees. Now, Now, I've been emphasizing how risky Ruth's actions were. But here's why it works. Uh, Verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. I remember what Boaz knew Ruth's story before he met her. That was, it was widespread, the kindness, the hesed she had shown to her mother-in-law. Uh, and Boaz testifies to her character, which is also well known. And this is Boaz's promise that he will not take advantage of her. He doesn't look down on her because she asked for help in this way. But he's going to do everything he can to help her. There's a plot twist. Verse 12. Now it's true I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So Ruth risked her reputation and the reputation of the best man in town. And uh, Ruth risked that Boaz would not dishonor her or endanger her, and he does not. In fact, he makes the most binding and serious promise a Hebrew could make. He invokes the name of the Lord and emphatically says he will redeem her if at all possible. Yes, I am a Goel, but there is one who has a greater claim than I, and we need to deal with that. I will deal with that. Uh, Boaz does not take advantage of her in any way, and he does not so that he can be in a place where God blesses him. God does not bless sin. Uh, so uh, there's this scenario here in which there could be sexual, sexual immorality that took place, but it doesn't happen. The Bible instructs believers to avoid sexual immorality. Uh, not to avoid sex, but to avoid sex outside the way God designed. Uh, so l- let me point out to you, just a, a, as, a, as an aside, uh, this New Testament truth. I've, I've done it before. Uh, I think it's just important to say it again. But from 1 Thessalonians 4, it's, it, it's a warning to believers, those who are claiming to follow Christ, about being sexually immoral. Because if you're sexually immoral as a believer, three consequences, three things can happen. Number one, if you're doing that, you are behaving like someone who doesn't know God at all. Uh, and as long as you continue to behave as someone who doesn't know God at all without repenting, without turning from that, then you can't have assurance that you belong to Jesus. Uh, second, 
uh, if you're sexually immoral claiming to be a believer, then you're defrauding someone else. Verse 6a of 1 Thessalonians 4. Because sex is not just about you, it impacts the person you are with, and it cheats the one whom you might marry. The third consequence is that you're going to experience consequences from your behavior. Because God disciplines his, his children. Scripture promises that when they, when they disregard his boundaries. But Boaz, uh, although this is written a thousand years later after Boaz, Boaz and Ruth are, are following this principle. Boaz stays in the place of blessing and encourages Ruth in that way. So verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So to send Ruth out in the middle of the night would be dangerous. To have her there with him when everyone woke up in the morning would be misunderstood. And so in the darkness, before people were stirring, uh, they get up. And before she leaves, Boaz gives her a gift of barley. And when Ruth got home and told Naomi everything that happened, Naomi said, verse 17, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, uh, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So, so Ruth is repeating what Boaz said. Boaz is very wise. He gives gifts to the mother-in-law. You do want her on your side, right? And uh, you don't want her saying, this guy is not for you. You want her to say, hey, uh, this guy is treating you well, and I like him. And that's uh, what happens here. Uh, now, Naomi has been giving Ruth advice all along the way. Now look what she tells her, uh, verse 18. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. Now, it's interesting, she's been telling Ruth to do this and go there, and here's, but now she says, don't do anything. Don't take another step. Don't tell Boaz you want to define the relationship. Don't pursue him. Don't hound him. You've gone far enough. Now you've got to wait. He's going to get to the bottom of this today. That, that's, that's what he's promised. And so here, this brings us to the second bumper uh, that's demonstrated here. That second bumper is this, hopeful rest. Hopeful rest. On the one side, you have faithful risk. On the other side, you have hopeful rest. Because this is great advice from Naomi. She she said, you've done what you could do. Now wait. If this is what God wants, if Boaz is the right guy, he's going to get this sorted out. It's up to him now. Now what, what, what I want you to see, first of all, is that what Ruth did by coming to Boaz is like how you and I must come to Jesus. This is how we must approach Jesus. Ask Jesus, will you redeem me? Uh, I need you to redeem me. Will you redeem me? Will you rescue me? To ask that question means that you realize you need rescuing. You need redemption. You understand that you're in a desperate situation. You realize that you're in need of saving because you're sinful. You're lost. You're separated from God. And you can't save yourself. Some of you are not believers today because you've never gotten to the place where you realize just how needy you are. And church is a good thing, or God, that's that's an important thing, and that's part of my life. But unless you get to the point where you realize that you are lost, uh, and that you desperately are, you're separated from God, and you need saving, that's when uh, you you turn to Jesus. Uh, You must get there. Uh, You must realize how needy you are. You won't ever truly trust Christ. And when you get to the point where you admit that you need to be rescued, Jesus does all the work. Jesus does it all. Uh, Jesus entered our broken world and he battled sin and death and hell. And and in effect, he said to his broken world, he said, don't worry, I've got this covered. 
And he says, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so Jesus fought the fight that you could not win. He paid the price that you could not pay. He redeems out of love. You do nothing uh, or deserve nothing to, to, to deserve God's mercy, mercy and redemption. There's nothing you can do to earn or deserve that. That is so critical to understand. And Boaz is a great picture of that. Now, now next week we'll see how he rescues Ruth by paying a price. Jesus rescues us by paying the price of his own blood. His life poured out on the cross. His sacrifice on the cross buys us back from sin and shame and guilt and despair. And we contribute nothing to that. We just say, Jesus, rescue me. Uh, he is the Redeemer, the Lord of all. And, and, and that's the place we must be. Uh, our rescue is all God's doing. We're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ when we accept that gift by faith. The gospel is so powerful because it sets us free by what Jesus has already done, not by what we must do. Any religion, any church, any teacher that talks about here's what you must do, here's how you earn or deserve the favor of God is wrong, is heresy, is headed straight to hell. There's only one gospel that is powerful to salvation, and that is the good news of Jesus, that he's done it all. And that's why, so Christians are not if you're in Christ, you're not about frantically trying to do good and earn God's favor. You are living in hopeful rest. You're not going through life going, i got to make sure I, I, I keep God on my good side and do everything to, to deserve his love. No, no, no. I'm not trying to, to, to earn and satisfy God in that way. The true Christian lives in hopeful rest because Jesus has paid it all. Resting in what God has done. Trusting that he's in control. Now that might raise a question in your mind. That, well, if my works don't count toward my salvation, does that mean that nothing I do matters? It's an important question. Let me show you a picture. This, uh, maybe a little hard to see, this is a picture of my dad and me and my little brother at the New York World's Fair. I was six years old. Uh, I, I've shared this with some of you before, but this is a memorable event in my life at six years old. I remember, uh, remember a fair bit of this. Uh, there were incredible things at this World's Fair. Uh, well, one of the, the fact that my dad took 98% of the pictures in our life uh, means that he's not in too many of them, but my mom took this one. So this is great. She did a great job, but she's not in it. I'm sad about that. Uh, now, one thing I remember about the World's Fair when I was six was the Ford Magic Skyway. Now, the Ford Magic Skyway was a ride where you got into a shiny new Fairlane convertible and drove on a track. You start out in this building, and we, our family got in the car, the four of us, and I said, can I steer? And my dad shockingly said, sure. And so I'm like a little terrified. I'm steering, and the car creeps out of the building and out on a track around the outside of the building, going up the side of the building, several stories above the ground. And I'm like, I am terrified. Well, I'm gripping the wheel with a death grip. What if I steer wrong and we go plunging over the edge and I've killed my family at six years old? I'll never... And then I started to be kind of impressed with how good I was at driving. I mean, everything's staying right there, and it's, I'm really good. I've not done this before, but this is pretty good. And then um, I started to wonder halfway around the building, what kind of a lousy father lets a six-year-old drive a car? And so 
I wanted to, well, you know, maybe I'm not in control of this. So I did a little, you know, steering toward the edge, just a little bit, and nothing happened. We're still perfectly going around. And all of a sudden, I realized I was not in control at all. And I went from utter terror to absolute indifference. I don't want to touch this anymore. Don't care. Doesn't matter. Anything I do doesn't matter. Is that how life with God is? No. We are not robots where God programs everything to run one way and nothing we do matters. That's not how God has designed our world. God doesn't put his children on a track where we don't have to think or make decisions. Uh, Psalm 121, uh, 8, 8 says that the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in both now and forever. That word guard, uh, the, the Hebrew word means to protect, to watch over. That, that's what God does in our lives. God is sovereign. He's in control. And he watches over. He protects. He guards. And so here's what I want you to grasp from uh, Ruth chapter 3. Because God is sovereign, you can take faithful risks and enjoy hopeful rest. That's what life is like when you know who God is and when you trust him through Christ. Now, to those of you who live overly cautious lives, there's got to be some of you in here. Maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're not, maybe you're not. But you live an overly cautious life. So you've got everything in your life on an Excel spreadsheet. You've just got it all charted. And you don't make a move until all the questions are answered. You wear a belt and suspenders. You have a contingency plan for your contingency plan. Uh, now, being prepared is good. Uh, having a plan is good. But excessive caution means that you don't trust that God is in control. And maybe you're so guarded with your money, so guarded with your time, that you don't give in a way that honors God, you don't serve in a way that honors God, and you fail to be generous, you fail to open yourself up to others, you're closed off, you're private, you're restrained, you're tight-fisted, so you don't go on a mission trip because, well, what if I can't raise the money? Uh, what if it's dangerous? Or you don't join a small group because, what if I don't like the people? What if they don't like me? What if they expect me to talk? I can't do that. Uh, you don't give much because, well, what, what, if, what if recession hits and, and I don't have enough money? Uh, you don't share your faith because well, what if I say the wrong thing or I don't know enough or I don't know anybody to share with? Uh, so, uh, but Jesus calls his followers to risk everything, even life itself. And if your faith is in the sovereign Lord, you need to open your hands and open your heart and take a faithful risk. Just so it's not disobeying God, you can step out in faith. And if you're paralyzed by fear, uh, fear of failure, uh, or, or you, you're paralyzed by uncertainty, it comes down to what do you believe about God? There are risks to take, and they must be faithful ones. Now, then, how about those who live overly anxious lives? There's got to be some of you here, overly anxious uh, something happens that you can't control. It's out of your control, and it puts you in despair. So uh, in the big picture, maybe the person you voted for doesn't get elected, and you feel all is lost. Or the job that you were perfect for turns you down. Uh, the woman you thought was your next wife takes out a restraining order. Uh, the, the, the position you worked so hard to get goes to somebody else who doesn't seem as qualified. Uh, the, 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 the person you counted on the most in your life disappoints you, breaks your trust. The school you wanted, the family you waited for, the health you expected disappears. And you thought you did everything you could or, or should have, and it's not going well. And so now you're racked with guilt or regret or worry, or fear. And so maybe you force things to happen. You push for a better outcome. 
Maybe you struggle to worship God, to adore God, because he feels so distant from you, so absent from what's going on in your life. Maybe prayer seems like a waste of time. Maybe you shut people out of your life or medicate your pain as a result. Well, let me say that all your reactions and level of anxiety shows what you really believe about God. Your extreme efforts or your constant worry may cover up a lack of faith in the God who is actively in control. And every day you need to repeat words like these, like Psalm 73, 28. It says, I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. That should be your daily affirmation, that this is who's in charge and my trust is in him. And when you entrust yourself to the sovereign Lord, then you can enjoy hopeful rest. If you belong to Jesus, life is different. It's not a motorized track where it doesn't matter which way you turn. It's not a lonely existence where you control your own destiny. Life with Christ is where you go forward with confidence in the Lord who is sovereign over all. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your guidance and direction in this life, that by the Scriptures, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, by the way in which you are actively at work in our world, uh, you lead and guide us. And so, Lord, may every one of us who names the name of Jesus uh, seek to live under your sovereign control. Uh, Seek to look at our lives and circumstances and situations that way. So, so Lord, ease the anxiety of any one of us who names the name of Jesus today. Uh, Cause any of us who are uh, overly controlling our own lives to release that and to trust in you, the sovereign Lord of this universe. Wherever we're at, Lord, you have a word for us today. So by your grace and glory and goodness, teach and lead and guide. Help us to see your kindness, your hesed, your mercy in all things, shown most graciously and wonderfully in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.